Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, Upstate University Hospital's Chief Executive Officer discusses his institution's pandemic response. Well, we've been preparing for all kinds of crises or emergencies. Um, I'm not sure that anybody was prepared for this. We do pandemic testing, but this is uh, this is pretty extreme. A respiratory therapist explains the impact of coronavirus on the lungs and the role of respiratory therapists. We've seen a lot of lung remodeling, a lot of lung damage from the virus. So you could you could have this virus and have very, very, very light symptoms and not really know. And a child psychologist talks about helping kids cope with the coronavirus anxiety. Let your kids know that it's normal to feel scared or frustrated. Any and all feelings are okay. All that, along with a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, on a special coronavirus-themed episode, we'll hear from the respiratory therapist about how coronavirus impacts the lungs and the role of respiratory therapy. Then we'll talk with a child psychologist about how we can help our children and teens deal with anxiety. But first, the Chief Executive Officer for Upstate University Hospital discusses how his staff is handling the pandemic response. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Staff at Upstate University Hospital do practice drills on a variety of disaster scenarios, including what would happen during a pandemic like the one our nation is dealing with. Hospital Chief Executive Officer Dr. Robert Corona is with me by telephone to tell us about the hospital response here in Syracuse. Thank you for making time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Corona. Thank you, Amber. It's a pleasure. Now, I know the hospital was prepared for this, but can you walk us through what that means? What, what are you doing today? Well, we've been preparing for all kinds of uh, crises or emergencies. Um, I'm not sure that anybody was prepared for this. Um, we, do, we do pandemic testing, uh, but this is, uh, this is pretty extreme. Um, so what we did is we established what's called incident command. And uh, Incident Command essentially takes over the decision-making for the hospital, uh, actually our entire health system, which extends out into the outpatient world, uh, as well as the hospital. And um, we are uh, about a group of 80 people, all with expertise in areas like, in this case, infectious disease, uh, other clinical areas like excuse me, medicine and surgery, people that are expert in logistics, materials management. You can imagine trying to manage all the personal protective equipment, uh, getting ventilators and so on is, is quite a task. There's been a, an outpouring of community support and even international support to provide us with uh, material supplies. Um, so this team meets uh, twice a day. Uh, for an hour. It's very disciplined, very organized. Uh, decisions are made. Uh, data is updated and we execute and it's uh, pivoting and making uh, uh, really impactful decisions uh, hour by hour. And we should point out these 80 people are not gathering together. A lot of this is done remotely, right? Yeah. Well, it started out a little bit of gathering together, but <clears throat> it's um, it's now all remote. Um, we, we have people that are at the front line, they get exposed, they have to be quarantined, isolated, uh, tested. Um, we have uh, backup plans for everybody. You know, we're, we're working seven days a week, uh, many of us working, you know, 20-hour days. So we, we try to give uh, individuals a, a break every once in a while. Um, but it's a grind. Uh, but we know uh, we have to do it. It's, uh, it's, it's necessary. So how does the incident, incident command structure interface with Onondaga County's Emergency Management Office? Because they, they well, activated themselves too, right? Right. So the county has the public health officials um, that have responsibilities uh, to the county and the, and the state the Department of Health. 
So we're a component of that, and we provide um, information and work collaboratively with them, but we also have to operate our own uh, health system, and um, that uh, requires uh, work independent of what the county is doing, although we coordinate with them um, and share information. Uh, we also work with the other hospitals in the community, too. Um, we've had um, exchanges of equipment that we might have um, a little bit extra of, and then we receive equipment from uh, from another hospital that they may have a little extra equipment. We uh, parsed out 10% of our personal protective equipment to the wonderful uh, frontline practitioners and private practice out in the community to help protect them, and they in turn uh, protected our emergency room from getting overloaded with concerned patients. It's been an amazing um, observation to see the collaboration that's occurred in the community, how uh, people have banded together. If people dropping off masks, people offering to build ventilators, people building things on 3D printers in their homes, um, very inspiring. Wow. Let's talk about the impact coronavirus has had on the daily operations. I know elective surgeries have been postponed, I guess indefinitely. Uh, many employees are working from home. What are some other examples of things that have happened because of the pandemic? Well, the intent is to preserve the protective um, information, protective uh, equipment that we have, personal protective equipment, or you'll hear the term PPE, and and most of all to protect um, our healthcare workers who are the front line. I mean, these these uh, individuals are going out there every day. They're showing up. They're not complaining. Sometimes they have uh, the the minimal of protective equipment, although we, we won't send anybody into the front line without the appropriate equipment. The, the recommendations are changing on a day-by-day basis as we learn more. Um, but what we try to do is to minimize the uh, contact. So uh, we have canceled the elective surgeries. We still do emergency surgeries. Um, we're trying to separate the people who are rule out infection uh, from the people that have other medical problems so that um, we can focus uh, the use of the protective equipment in, in only certain areas where, where we cluster the, the patients that are rule out for uh, the COVID-19 virus. And then We've created a thing called virtual visits where patients can that are in the hospital or in the emergency room can download an app where they can communicate with their healthcare professionals that are in the hospital, but the professionals don't have to come in the room and interface with them if they um, don't need to. So if there was just a question or they had a, uh, a concern that um, they needed to be observed by the individual, they could do it right off of their their iPhone or their iPad or any other communication device. And that, that diminishes the exposure of our um, frontline providers. We also are doing telemedicine visits because our clinics have been closed. And um, in, in some specialties, you can almost take care of every single patient um, with uh, telemedicine, um, uh, like neurology and some of the uh, diabetes issues we take care of by telemedicine. So that, uh, that's another way we handle it. So the patients are still getting care during this time. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Robert Corona. He's the Chief Executive Officer at Upstate University Hospital. Now, Upstate also has created uh, the coronavirus assessment tool, and there's a hotline as well, um, but the assessment tool is online at upstate.edu so that the community can go in. If, some, if someone's having symptoms, they can go to this tool and it will help decide what they should do, right? That's correct. Um, so the tool was developed with a team from Upstate and Microsoft. We call it a chat bot. And it, it's essentially a, a basic artificial intelligence system that allows um, an individual to uh, um, go uh, online and um, 
they answer a few questions that the computer uh, has an algorithm to, and it gives them uh, a likelihood of whether or not um, they have an infection or they've had an exposure and what the next step should be. Okay. Well, one of the things that amazes me is that with the huge effort devoted to the COVID-19 preparations, all of the other hospital services are still going on. I, I mean, uh, people don't stop getting sick for other reasons just because of the pandemic, right? We still have a, tra- yeah. a trauma team that has to be ready and a burn unit and a stroke team, and people are still delivering babies at community. That all still has to yeah. go along at the same time, right? Yeah, the things that have to happen have to happen, and uh, we accommodate them. I mean, our emergency rooms are still seeing patients, and we're still using telemedicine in our clinics, and um, uh, we're trying to uh, to take care of everybody the best we can. Um, we're just uh, we're just uh, trying to minimize the things that are not essential, and um, and uh, as this plays out. Um, once we come back online, we'll we'll gra- gradually ramp ramp up the the uh, ability to, to see patients live. But um, so far, we're we're doing a good job. The um, the management of patients is working well using this technology, and this might be what the future is going to hold. Um, it's been talked about a lot. Um, it, the technology has been available, but uh, the medical system is slowly adopted it and now we uh, we've adopted it quite quickly and it, it uh, seems to be helping a lot they say necessity is the mother of invention so yeah here we are having to put this. Been, been well um the governor also has asked all the hospitals in new york to double their occupancy ability uh to double the number of beds that they have does upstate university hospital have a plan for that how to accomplish that yeah, we do. The uh, the governor uh, mandated that every hospital CEO sign off on a plan. I was fortunate to have an amazing team of um, operations experts, clinicians that uh, worked uh, pretty much 24-7 um, to uh, get this plan in place. And so he mandated 50% increase and um, our, our team was able to put forth a, a plan that could increase our bed capacity by 77%. Huh. So we went a little bit uh, above and beyond what was uh, asked of us by the, the governor. He, I'm sure he would love 100%, which would bring us to close to about 1,500 beds. But um, we were able to put together a plan you know the the staffing and uh, uh, obtaining the the beds and making space for them uh, is uh, sometimes very difficult. So um, I'm I'm very impressed with the plan we put forward. All the CEOs in the state, uh, all the hospital CEOs in the state, had to have that plan submitted to the Department of Health yesterday, and the governor is showing the statistics uh, today in his press conference. And so it's more than just saying you'll double up rooms, or is that is that part of it? Putting private rooms into making them doubles, or that's part of it. Uh, taking uh, operating rooms and turning them into intensive care unit rooms, taking uh, uh, exercise rooms or gyms, turning them into rooms, uh, patient rooms. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, imagination that had to be used to uh, to get to that number of beds. So is it all have to be within your existing facility, or could you choose an empty building and, and say you're going to fill that up and make that be your overflow? Well, right now it's all within our existing facility. But he also he made the original ask of the CEOs of the hospitals, but then he later also asked for individuals that owned ambulatory surgery centers, and other uh, outpatient-type facilities to do the same, figure out if they could double the capacity of beds there. So we have uh, options to use other places, um, potentially dorms. There have been a lot of hotel uh, owners who have contacted uh, us and offered uh, hotels either for patients or for 
um, maybe traveling uh, medical staff that have come to help, that they could come and stay in the hotel and they would provide um, uh, uh, food for them as well at, at a very reasonable price. Okay. Well, we do have a lot of listeners in the community. You mentioned some people that have offered to make masks and um, that are using 3D printers to help build things that are needed. Is there a way for people who want to help out to get involved? Yeah, there is. um, uh, Many people have had contacts of various people at Upstate, so that's one way in that we we channel them to the appropriate person. Um, There is a... uh, there is a COVID uh, email that I don't have handy, uh, but that that is another way to, uh, to communicate. And then there's somebody that will read read the emails and, and triage uh, the uh, offer to the appropriate area. So we will uh, get that information and we'll post it online at uh, upstateshealthlinkonair.org. Let me ask you finally how you envision things playing out. In other words, the steps that have been taken so far seem like they're taken in advance because we're planning for this. So what does it look like when the number of cases in our community stop dropping? How are things going to get back to normal? Is there a plan for that already in place? Yeah, well, this is a work in progress. It's um, it's tough to predict. So the latest uh, uh, data people have put together the uh, peak in New York State to be in 21 days. Um, and then it will take a couple of weeks after that to kind of see if the, uh, if the number of hospitalizations and people that are uh, testing positive starts to drop. Um, so uh, we're taking it uh, one day at a time, but we anticipate that we'll start to, you know, open up our, our, uh, clinics and um, and slowly uh, schedule more surgeries and um, we may have to uh, help our our friends downstate um, because if they get overwhelmed um, the governor said he's going to be sending patients uh, upstate to our hospitals here and it was uh, stated that we might have to go down and get the patients so um, it's really hard to predict but um, all the predictions on when we're going to hit the peak uh, are somewhere around 21 days. Lots of important information. Thank you to Dr. Robert Corona. He's the Chief Executive Officer at Upstate University Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, the impact of coronavirus on the lungs. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Coronavirus causes a respiratory infection called COVID-19. To help us understand what this virus does to the lungs is respiratory therapist Michelle Petticone. She's an assistant professor of respiratory therapy in Upstate's College of Health Professions, and she's joining me by telephone. Thank you for making time to talk with me, Michelle. Thank you, Amber. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. From what I understand, someone who's infected may have the virus in their body for up to 14 days before they experience any symptoms. Is the virus in the lungs during that time? It absolutely can be, yes. In fact, you can have this virus in your lungs and not necessarily show the symptoms of the that high fever and the other things that we've heard about on the news. This virus attacks the lungs, and even if with individuals who have very, very light symptoms, we've seen a lot of lung remodeling, a lot of lung damage from the virus. So you could, you could have this virus and have very, very, very light symptoms and not really know. Wow. And then I know people who develop like a more severe case, they say to watch out for shortness of breath. Now, I wanted to ask you, what causes the shortness of breath? So with this virus, 
it presents as like a bilateral pneumonia. So the pneumonia is like a, the lung sacs are, are filling up with fluid and pus. So this virus will have your lungs can be filling with all this fluid, and it's very, very difficult to breathe when you have this stuff in your lungs. It kind of feels like a, like you're suffocating, like you can't get enough air, like you're underwater. Okay. Now, um, someone who has healthy lungs is going to be better equipped to fight this, I'm assuming, right? Yes, because you're already, you know, you're already a little bit stronger than somebody who has a chronic lung disease and somebody who has other comorbidities. And uh, smokers, people who vape, things like that, um, you might not have been diagnosed with something, but are your lungs probably damaged in some way if you're a smoker? From what we know, yes, smoking and vaping does lead, lead to lung disease. And therefore, these lungs would be more susceptible to having greater insult if they were attacked by this virus. It just also applies to people who may be immunocompromised from other diseases that they may have, as well as uh, high blood pressure and diabetes. All right. Well, it seems uh, at the moment respiratory therapists are the ones on the front lines fighting this pandemic. And so I wanted to ask you sort of who respiratory therapists are, what training they have, how prepared are they to deal with this? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, as a respiratory therapist, we often get lumped in with nursing. I'm often called a, a respiratory nurse, but it's completely different than that. A respiratory therapist goes through at least a minimum of two years of training, and that is specific to the heart and the lungs. So in their education program, they learn how to take care of patients from, from the newborn infant to we're in the delivery room when babies are born, all the way up to someone taking their last breath. So we administer oxygen, we administer very a lot of medications, and it takes several years for you to learn not only about these different modalities, but also which disease state is appropriate for which modality. And it's not like we can just you know, give a patient uh, some oxygen or medication and expect them to just get better, we have to manage that patient's disease as well. And there's so many different diseases out there. So respiratory therapy is very, very highly uh, valued as well we should be at the bedside. Um, it's an intense program. There is a lot of math and science involved. So I know there's a lot of people who aren't that fond of that. But know how to manage disease states, to know how to run a ventilator. It's a highly sophisticated piece of equipment costing, you know, 50, 60, up to $100,000 per machine. And to know how to apply that to a patient and monitor a patient, the interaction between the patient and the ventilator is very important for helping our patients to get better. So this is a profession for someone who's interested in um, math or science or healthcare, but doesn't want to become a a physician doesn't want to go to medical school. This is a one of those professions that has a high need. And can you apply to get into uh, a program straight out of high school, or you go to college first and then apply? How does that work? There are several programs in the country that will allow you to apply out of high school. Of course, they're going to want prerequisites, so it's going to take a few years um, to get those. At Upstate, our program is a bachelor's prepared program, so it's a four-year program, of which your last two years are very highly specific to respiratory therapy. You know, again, you know, like I said, when when a baby is born, we're there. If anything's going to go wrong, 99% of the time it's going to be respiratory. So it's very important that we understand the lung mechanics of um, a one-pound infant all the way through the lifespan. And so a bachelor's program, the first couple years, are you doing sort of things that you would do in college, English? Absolutely, okay. yes. You're getting all your, your, pre, your prereqs, your undergrad stuff, your English, science, math, all the basic stuff that you need for many um, higher-level degrees. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with respiratory therapist Michelle Petticone. She's an assistant professor of respiratory therapy in Upstate's College of Health Professions, and we're talking about how respiratory therapists are on the front lines during this pandemic. So during a normal workday for a respiratory therapist who works in a hospital, what is their day typically like? 
So most most respiratory therapists are putting in that 12-hour shift. So they are showing up, getting their assignments, checking on their patients, and then they'll start doing their rounds. It's very important that they assess every single patient that they're assigned to and monitor that patient and make recommendations to the physicians on the patient's care. It's The respiratory therapist is the expert in the heart and lungs, and we make the recommendations to physicians for changes that would would benefit the patient. And through our assessment, through monitoring, through uh, blood gases, we actually take blood samples to help us decide how the patient is oxygenating and able to, to um, expel the carbon dioxide. Now, some of the work, uh, patients might need a ventilator routinely, right? You have patients that are on ventilators that are not infected with coronavirus. Yes, that's true. There are many different disease states that require a ventilator to help people breathe. Sometimes it's very temporary. Sometimes it's a longer term. When a patient has to be on a ventilator for a long time, they often get a tracheostomy, which will bypass the upper airway and help to ventilate a patient long term. All these patients will need some type of ventilator to help them breathe when you can't breathe yourself. We often put patients on a ventilator to help them to rest, to overcome whatever disease they may have that is causing that um, inability to breathe. The goal is always to wean a patient off of a ventilator. And that's why a respiratory therapist is so important because we are educated in, in managing these patients who are, who are weaning for the best outcome. So I want to ask you more about the ventilator and how it operates. Is, it, is there a piece of it? Does it just go over the patient's nose and, and mouth, or does, it get, does some of it get inserted into the patient somewhere? So a ventilator is a sophisticated machine with, with highly designed software, and it attaches to the, there's tubing from the ventilator, circuits from the ventilator to the patient, and if the patient has to be invasively ventilated, then a tube is put through the trachea, through the vocal cords, down to ventilate the lungs. And respiratory therapists can do that too. It's a breathing tube, it's called endotracheal tube, and we can intubate, putting breathing tubes into people, and then we can hook that up to the ventilator, and then the ventilator can help you know, deliver the breath and delivers the amount of pressure and volume for each breath tailored to the particular patient. So in that case, the tube comes out of their mouth, but you mentioned a tracheotomy before. Is that where you you cut into the... That is, absolutely. Some patients do require a tracheostomy, and and it is right there in in the neck, yes. All right. And then our patients, how long are they typically on a ventilator? I know you said the goal is to get them off. But does that just depend on how they're responding? Yes, it does. Um, we don't like to see patients on a ventilator longer than two weeks, um, because then if you're if you're ventilated for a long time, you know that's all artificial, and there's other things that can happen. I mean, there's infection that can happen. There's lung damage that can happen from um, from a ventilator pushing the air into you, because it's not normal. We're not meant to breathe that way, so it needs to just be like a a temporary piece to help us to get better so, and then to remove the tube. Are there alternatives to ventilators? We're, we're talking at a time when ventilators may become in short supply. So what alternatives are out there, if any? There are some non-invasive machines that you can use if the patient is not as compromised. And what that means is that they don't need the breathing tube. They just need help. Um, a little extra pressure with a mask or something. So we do have some of those tools, but those two, I imagine, would not be in in great supply right now. As far as other alternatives, once you put a breathing tube into a patient, something has to deliver a breath, either a ventilator or a human being with an um, with a resuscitation bag at the end of that that tube, and that's what they did. Uh, years ago, before they had a ventilator, they would have to try to hook people up, and around the clock, you would be bagging a patient. You'd manually have to squeeze a bag of air in, in right. for each breath, basically, right? Right, right. And that, you know, that's very a very subjective way to to deliver ventilation, and it's not the best thing for your patient. 
Now, I've heard some uh, proposals to maybe put together a splitter or something that would allow two patients to be ventilated at the same time from the same machine. That's not routinely done, though, right? No, no, not at all. And, and I would really hope that we would never have to come to that point. The, how we ventilate a patient with a ventilator is specific to that patient, to their size, to their lungs, to their needs. And if we're using one ventilator for two or four patients, we're ventilating them all at for patient A. And patient D's needs might be so completely different that we might be causing more damage. So we talked about the regular day for a respiratory therapist, but during this pandemic, that's probably changed quite a bit. What are, what are they doing? How are they staffing for this? Well, it takes a a lot longer to put on all the personal protective equipment that they need to take care of these patients and also to take it off and be safe. Um, from my understanding from with my colleagues is that they are putting in longer hours with, with less resources. So it's very stressful. It's stressful on them and it's stressful on other families at home. Their days, the days of a respiratory therapist have always been busy and we don't get much you know, time to sit. We have multiple patients. We don't just have two patients. So we're always running and always doing a lot. And because we take care of patients throughout the whole lifespan, um, we're able to, to do many different things, to respond in many different ways. Well, it's important work, especially now. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Thank you so much to Michelle Petticone. She's a respiratory therapist and part of the respiratory therapy faculty in Upstate's College of Health Professions. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coping with anxiety, perspective from a child psychologist. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. How can parents help their children and teens cope with the coronavirus crisis? I'll speak with child psychologist Wendy Gordon by telephone. She's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate, specializing in child clinical psychology. Thank you for making time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Gordon. Of course, my pleasure. So what are the common reactions of adults and of children in the face of this virus? Well, adults, certainly, we're all human. Fear, anxiety, concerns about their health and safety and health and safety of their children, and then other things like financial concerns, job status, etc. With children, some of the same fear, anxiety, what will happen to them, why can't they go to school, why can't they see their friends and other family members. It's got to be hard, um, depending on the age of the child, to, to explain that to them. Why can't they go play with their friend, right? Well, that's true. It is hard. And I think that the key points to consider in talking to your child um, is to, first of all, talk to your child, start a dialogue, asking questions like, what have you heard about this coronavirus? gives you an opportunity to find out what your child has heard, is thinking about it, and to correct any misinformation that they might have heard. For example, that all elderly people will get sick. Elderly to young kids mean any grown-up, so they might think that means you um, or their own grandparents. Um, you can encourage older teens to research themselves a bit using CDC or WHO websites. But I think the key points are be honest but not just negative. Most people who get this virus don't get extremely sick, and most people who get sick get all better. Some people who get sick will die, but most people will get better. And explain why they might see people wearing masks, why schools are closed, etc. So, for example, people are wearing masks so they don't give other people germs if they have a cough or a cold or they just don't feel too well. It does not mean they have the coronavirus, it does not mean that they're going to make you sick. 
I think it's also important to let your kids know the precautions that you're taking for yourself and for them to help them stay healthy. So first, washing your hands, keeping things at home very clean, emphasizing the importance of hand washing and making sure they do it correctly and often. And making things like hand washing, coughing or sneezing into their elbow or into a tissue a game for the younger kids. If they forget to do one of these things, don't get angry, don't be harsh with them, just something like, oh, well, you forgot. Now we need to wash the sneeze or the cough off with soap and water. You want to reassure your kids that grandma and grandpa and other elderly people are taking care of themselves, too, to help keep them from getting sick. And that many things, including their schools, are closed because this is another good way of helping people to stay healthy and not give their germs to others until this virus is under better control. And I think, lastly, to answer this question of yours, let your kids know that it's normal to feel scared or frustrated. Any and all feelings are okay. The feelings are normal, but you also can the fact that you know that those normal feelings can be uncomfortable. For younger kids, you can explain it as thinking of it as their brain helping them to remember to stay healthy and remember to hand wash. For teens, their feelings show that they care about what's happening and wanting to keep themselves and other people healthy. This seems like a moment where parents have the opportunity to rise to the occasion. This is the tough job to be a parent and do all the things you just mentioned. That's a lot. You bet. You bet. And so I think one of the most important things that the parents need to consider is that we all deal with low levels of anxiety and stress on a daily basis, and we generally cope well with them. But intense chronic anxiety leads to emotional dysregulation and causes us to act impulsively, less intelligently, and less efficiently. Anxiety stems from unpredictability and feelings that we are not in control. And when you think about what is happening with this virus, those are two of the feelings right at the top of the list, anxiety um, and from unpredictability. We don't know what's going to happen, how long this is going to take, how much worse it's going to get. And we also feel like we lack control to deal with the situation. And those feelings can affect our thoughts, behaviors, our physical functioning, headaches, stomach aches, chest tightening, sleep difficulties, increased levels of irritability. So I think that one of the most important things a parent should consider before going into any of the how do I deal with my child, how do I help them, is we need to pay attention to our own emotions. We are human. We have all the same feelings and maybe more awareness of what's going on than certainly the younger kids do. We need to pay attention to how we're feeling first. There's an old expression, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, and we can broaden that to dads and other adults as well. If we don't have control of our emotions, we're not going to be in the best position to assist our children and other members of the family. So if you are stressed or anxious or irritable, your children will absolutely pick up on those feelings. And very often, they reflect your behaviors in their own. So they will act anxious or irritable or withdrawn or aggressive. You want to stay calm. You want to manage your own anxiety. I realize easier said than done, but we can talk about some strategies in a minute if you like. Talking to a partner, talking to a friend, talking to a counselor, um, talking to a religious, um, your religious counselor, priest, rabbi, imam. Whatever helps you as an individual to calm down, because if you're calm, you then avoid scaring your children. Slow, deep breaths, in and out, in through your nose slowly, out slowly through pursed lips, and can decrease your heart rate, your pulse, and literally physically calm your body. It's good for adults, and it's great for kids as well. 
but we need to be in control of us before we can be helpful um, and effective in dealing with our children. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with child psychologist Dr. Wendy Gordon from Upstate. Now, what about uh, a parent who wanted to avoid discussing this situation entirely? Is it a good idea or not to go that route and keep your child sort of in the dark with what is happening outside of the... That's an excellent question, and I think that for most of us, our our knee-jerk instinctive reaction is to try to avoid things that are frightening, difficult to understand, or unpleasant. But I would strongly say to parents, for all but the very, very youngest children who clearly have no awareness of what's going on, um, and I'm talking about little, little ones, two, three, and under, um, but accepting that very young age group, you definitely should not avoid these kinds of discussions. Children need to have relevant, truthful, age-appropriate information. And if they feel that you don't want to talk with them about this, they'll get the feeling that the subject is off limits, which generally leads them to worry more, get their information from less reliable sources, which is usually wrong information, or use their imagination to try to offer themselves explanations for what's happening, and those are often incredibly frightening and incredibly inaccurate. As the parents, as the adults, we need to be the people our kids trust to tell them the truth. However, you don't want to provide too much information that the child can't understand. The goal is not to increase their anxiety or have them misinterpret what you said. So you want to um, give age-appropriate answers and listen carefully to what they're asking. Um, That was one of the reasons I suggested a few minutes ago that you might start out by asking your child what they've heard and what they know so you know what information they have, making sure it's accurate, correcting it if it's not, Um, and just letting your child know that while this doesn't have to be talked about endlessly every day, that you are the person they can come to if they have questions and you will answer honestly what you know. Let me ask you, when a household has a level of stress or anxiety um, in it, are misbehaviors more common in kids? Are you likely to see them acting out more? Absolutely. That's a possibility. Um, Kids mirror what they see at home. And if there's arguing intention and significant irritability and emotional dysregulation in the adult, it's no surprise and a high possibility that you will see these kinds of behaviors played out in the children. Children manage their emotions in various ways, as do adults. There may be more arguing. There may be more fighting. It may get physical. It may stay verbal. Some kids may get very withdrawn Um, and more anxious. We talk about the differences between kids who hold things in um, when they're very worried or frightened and and other kids who let things out and are more physical, um, whether it's verbal verbal aggression or physical aggression. Um, But that can certainly happen. It can also happen when kids are extremely bored. Um, and sometimes we'll argue with one another as a form of entertainment. But there's a very, very serious concern that in households that were not perhaps particularly well emotionally regulated to begin with, um, there could well be increases in domestic violence, in, in intimate partner violence um, that the children either witness or get drawn into directly, and that's a very real concern. In the little bit of time we have left, what are some practical strategies for managing anxiety, your own as a parent, as well as for your child? Okay, well, a couple of things. First of all, limit access to mass media and television, both for you and your children, because unlimited watching of even factual 
information increases our anxiety, particularly with the accurate information that we're hearing now. After a point, the anxiety literally takes over our brain and ends up with constant emotional dysregulation. It becomes like an endless loop of anxiety fed over and over and over again. So one thing I would say is that we all want to have information and updates about what's going on. So for adults and older kids, if you feel you need to watch a news source, schedule that for no more than two or three times a day, once maybe in the early morning, once in the afternoon, and once in the evening, but several hours before you go to bed so you can get relaxed again. We want to have the facts, but we don't want to overwhelm our ability to think clearly. Don't watch TV or have your adult discussions when your kids are present or within earshot. They pretty much hear everything that goes on, especially when they're not supposed to. Mm. And in terms of other practical strategies, remember, it's physical distancing, not emotional distancing. We're social creatures. We crave connection. It's not physical contact for now, but it can be FaceTime, phone calls, letters, texts. Talking to a relative or friend from outside through their glass windows or their glass doors. Teens especially should be encouraged to call their friends. Going outside, walking with a partner or walking with your child. And the last thing I would say is establish and stick to a daily routine. All of us do better with, again, predictability and having some control over our behavior. This is especially true for kids. So eating, sleeping, doing schoolwork, practicing instruments, taking some leisure time, whether that's board games or reading or family moving time, uh, movie time, should all be scheduled and routine, particularly Monday through Friday when the kids normally would have a routine at school and the parents at home or at work. Children should go to bed at a regular time, and it's crucial to include some type of physical activity or exercise because physical movement helps calm both kids and adults, and young kids especially need activities like jumping or dancing or walking. But the last thing I'd want to say is that the more you keep to your typical daily schedule, the more you can help decrease your own anxiety and feel some control over this situation, which acts as a direct feeder to decreasing your child's anxiety and also them feeling some control over the situation. Because remember, lack of control and lack of predictability are major sources of anxiety and emotional dysregulation and predictability and routine that we can provide, albeit in a, a more confined and restricted way, um, are the, the really crucial things in setting up what is the temporary normal or normal in an abnormal but temporary situation. Well, great advice. Thank you to Dr. Whitney Gordon. She's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral science at Upstate, specializing in child clinical psychology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Two of our poets gave us an intimate glimpse into the emotions we feel when we begin to parent our parents and ready ourselves for life without them. Courtney Davis is up first with Washing Mother's Hair. Davis, a nurse practitioner, is the author of three poetry collections. Washing Mother's Hair, one. Houses disappeared in snow, and pine trees tossed down sparrows frozen to their bones. We buried them in shoebox graves. Birds' ghosts, like my prayers, puffed into air. At night, we'd watch as cars slid sideways down our icy road. Dead Man's Hill, my mother said. Then she'd comb my hair, her thin black comb following her hand, until my hair sparked stars that melted everywhere. Two, November's winds increase and sparrows reappear as black-winged geese. Yesterday, we washed my mother's hair. 
Hold her head above the pan, I told him, and my father held her baby skull. Warm water from the pitcher, thin gray hair. Tonight, the first fog of snow into which geese and memories disappear, and my mother, my star, half seen, then vanishing. Next is Elaine Frabel, a poet, naturalist, and environmentalist educator from Maryland. Here is her poignant memory of her father in a poem called Safety. Black safety shoes. I stood on the steel toes when we danced. Now rest empty in dad's closet, missing his feet, the making of that steady, plodding step. Left on the bumper of my car, they rode with me to work unscathed, like glorious leather hood ornaments, bearing thick industrial soles. Maybe they sang in the wind, enduring potholes and grime, those gravity shoes that held him to earth, the champion of hurdles and the old soft shoe, the T-berry shuffle down the aisle at my wedding. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, or to hear health podcasts on various topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.